There are some things in history that most people have at least a passing awareness of, even if they don't know all the details. Names like Waterloo, Yorktown, Constantinople, Rome, Ramses, Julius Caesar, and Henry VIII all stick in the public consciousness. Like I said, the details may be fuzzy, but each and every one of them has name recognition. For Arizona, there are probably two names that approach that level of significance among the wider audience. Maybe because both of them, on the surface at least, fit so neatly into these stereotypes that make up a lot of Hollywood films. Or maybe because one of those names was really good at self-promoting his narrative of events and would actually run with Hollywood circles in later years. Or maybe because in the early 1990s you happened to watch one film in particular that filled your head full of notions of lawmen, outlaws, and gunfights. Either way, after more than 80 episodes, we have finally arrived at one of these states' grand historic set pieces, which still drives tourism to this very day. And I will just say that I have one particular friend out there who has been asking me for some time if I was anywhere close to finally actually talking about this upcoming incident. Well, the answer now is yes. Yes, I am. It's with some trepidation that I now take it upon myself to figure out the fact from the fiction, to provide both context and historical setting, and to develop an entertaining narrative about what might be the most famous gunfight to ever grace the American Southwest. So, without further ado, let's talk about those two big names to come out of Arizona's past. Tombstone and the one and only Wyatt Earp. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 83, The OK Corral, Part 1, Tombstone. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we ended our inadvertent miniseries on the Mormon immigration into the state of Arizona. Now, we are going to launch into a multi-episode arc about a man who was nearly the polar opposite of those Mormon farmers. A gambler, bounty hunter, bordello bouncer, opportunistic lawman, anger-driven avenger, and finally, self-made legend. But really, the story of Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the OK Corral is more about his whole family, the town of Tombstone, and conditions in Arizona in the early 1880s. In fact, when I contacted an acquaintance of mine and noted Wyatt Earp historian named Scott Dyke, he made the very valid point that Earp only spent two of his 80 years in Arizona. So I really want to touch on all of that and what led to those infamous 30 seconds in a Tombstone back alley. What follows is going to be taken primarily from works Dyke has published, as well as the book The Last Gunfight by author Jeff Gwynn, in addition to the various other sources that I usually draw from for this podcast. Now, I guess, since I already introduced it some time ago, the best place to start is to talk about Tombstone. We last touched on the town in episode 74 when we talked about how Ed Shifflin found the score of a lifetime though he himself would die in Oregon still looking for his next big strike. Since then, Tombstone had really taken on a life all of its own. The town at first was on the same trajectory as all mining camps. 
That is, a bunch of miners flew in, set up shacks, and started trying to get whatever they could out of the ground. Next came merchants interested in striking a rich too, but, as author Gwen notes, not by swinging a pickaxe. Miners needed food and they wanted to drink, but very few of them actually had any liquid cash on them. So the first saloons and restaurants were all housed within tents, which could be packed up and moved as easily as the miners themselves. But what makes gold strikes different from silver is that gold can be found in nuggets or as gold dust in stream beds. Silver, on the other hand, is tougher to extract and involves a variety of expensive processes to get it into a spendable state. After mining, the ore had to be crushed into fine grain, washed with chemicals, and we talked about those effects on miners back in episode 74, and finally, the silver separated from the dross to be turned into the large bars that we think of. And all of that was expensive. Though Shifflin made his initial discoveries in 1877, it wouldn't be until two years and several outside investors later that bullion was being processed and shipped out of the San Pedro River Valley. But by that time, it was apparent that the area could be the next big hotbed of mining, which led to the next big influx of workers, merchants, and others looking to cash in, which Gwynn compared to the tech boom in Silicon Valley in the 1980s. Most of these new arrivals were not going to lure themselves into a mine, break their backs, or ruin their health extracting silver. No, their fortunes were to be made off of everyone who did those things. So the next wave was what miners craved. Bathhouses to clean up after accumulating grind over the course of 12 hours in the mines. Gamblers to offer entertainment with continual games of cards. And prostitutes to, well, you know. Also, we find an influx of new restaurants with a variety of dishes. Gwyn points out that one of the other downsides of spending 10 hours a day in fetid air and noxious underground gases is that a miner's sense of taste was often doled. So they demanded a diet of things they could actually taste. Acidic pickles, sweets, things that were salted, smoked, or spiced up the wazoo. That being the case, food carts would pull themselves right up to the mines for lunch, while nearby restaurants would serve even more dishes in adjoining tents. Now, the downside to this is that the miners often had to deal with the effects of such a combustible diet. We are talking constipation, cramps, diarrhea, hemorrhoids, inflammation of all sorts of internal organs, and to add insult to injury, food poisoning. But that demand for food also created a need for shipping, and eventually none other than Wells Fargo took notice of this small speck of land in Arizona and moved in. And if Wells Fargo was coming to town, then there needed to be a town to begin with. There was some contention about where the actual town would be. Much like we saw in Phoenix when settlers were moving into that area, there were disputes about which site was closest to the mines, closest to the water, the best for expansion, yada yada yada. So the first settlement, called Watervale or Gaujai, had the benefit of being near the water, but was a full three miles away from the mines. As you can imagine, the miners were not that jazzed for that walk every day, so other sites sprang into being. A place called Richmond, or Hogham, located right next to where Shifflin first struck silver, had the attraction of being right next to the mine. The downsides were that water had to be hauled to it, and the location was situated on a ridge surrounded by steep arroyos, meaning there just wasn't that much room to set up shop. 
eventually the sight on a long, low mesa called Goose Flats won out. Like Richmond, it wasn't the closest to the water, but was near the richest mine and would be the easiest for wagons to access. The area was gobbled up by a pair of shady investors from San Francisco, working in conjunction with ex-Governor Safford and others, who formed the Tombstone Townside Company, both borrowing from Shifflin's original strike and naming the new town in the process. The new settlement was laid out with seven streets that were bisected at right angles by numbered streets. The seven streets were named after territorial notables, which is why today you can still find Fremont and Safford Street. Each city block was 300 square feet and divided into 24 individual lots. However, remember how I said these were shady investors? You see, Goose Flats was public domain land, meaning anyone could buy the land from the federal government for $1.25 an acre, which they could then sell for a moderate fee. Well, this group failed to actually make all of its scheduled payments to the government, which meant a huge legal hassle in the making as no one was quite sure who had the rights to sell what to whom in the new community. But, you know, that's tomorrow's problem. Today, there was silver to be mined. Except the land issue so often became today's problem. State historian Thomas Sheridan says that most early settlers just ignored claims and built wherever they wanted. There was a lot of lot jumping happening, which led to fights both with fists and guns. For example, in September 1879, Charlie Calhoun defended his lot with a lot of words and two shots from his pistol. Charlie was arrested, but the deputy sheriff said it all came down to the man having a bit too much to drink. The biggest news from these early days, though, was the establishment of a post office at Tombstone, which was usually the sign that you had made it. You were officially a town. It also marked Tombstone as the town in the San Pedro River Valley, beating out any and all challengers. And finally, in November 1879, the Pima County Board of Supervisors officially incorporated the burgeoning settlement as a village. But by that time, its fame had already spread wide enough that the Chicago Tribune was writing, quote, In a few months, the discovery of Tombstone put Arizona on the map and caused a rush like that of early Nevada and Colorado, end quote. But now that we have a town, sorry, technically a village, it's time to grow into a boom town. As I mentioned above, pretty much all of early Tombstone was tents. When the first hotel opened in April 1879, it was, you guessed it, inside of a tent. But that was going to change. April 1879 also saw the first permanent house go up, with timber starting to arrive from either the Pacific coast or from woodcutters who felt ambitious enough to cut trees in Apache-ridden mountains. The use of wood to build actual houses also points to the next development in Tombstone's growth. That is, we start to see a more sophisticated clientele cashing in on the silver boon. Here we are talking about mine managers, lawyers, high-grade merchants, restaurant owners, bankers, engineers, accountants, and all sorts of private investors. Gwen makes the very understandable point that these were the class of men who definitely did not want to be operating out of some random tent. Many brought families with them. If this was going to be their home, then they were going to make it into a welcoming place. But that was still a tall order. 
We have the diaries of George Whitwell Parson, who arrived in Tombstone in 1880 and who fastidiously chronicled everything that happened in his life over the course of some 60 years. His first impressions were hardly that welcoming. He described the town as, quote, one street of shanties, some with canvas roofs, end quote. And his own dwelling was, quote, rough house, simply roof and sides with openings all over through which the wind came freely, end quote. However, after taking some time to walk around and to get to know the town, he warmed up a bit to the place, observing, quote, fine broad street, good square meal, four bits, very reasonable indeed, money here, end quote. Some of Parson's earliest writings, however, concern themselves with the rats. As you can imagine, Tombstone was not exactly the cleanest place in the world. Dogs ran rampant, relieving themselves wherever they went, which didn't distinguish them much from the horses and mules that were constantly bringing in newcomers. It got so bad that the town actually banned hitching posts along Allen Street, which is the main thoroughfare. The town had garbage collection, but it was a one-man operation, and there was always more trash than you could pick up. So all that garbage and filth meant rats. Lots and lots of rats. We read of them swarming over the town and people sleeping in the new adobe and wood structures, trying to sleep while being serenaded by the scritching of rodent paws in the walls. Still, they were better off than the men sleeping in tents or out in the open, who often awoke to the feeling of rats running over their bodies and faces. And if they were really unlucky, it wasn't rats, but tarantulas and scorpions. Parson writes how one man rolled over while sleeping on the ground, only to come down onto a rat, mashing the rodent dead in the process. Good luck getting that image out of your head as you try to sleep tonight. In that kind of environment, someone owning a cat was considered just as lucky as a miner who had hit a rich vein of silver. Felines were in incredibly short supply, so getting your hands on one required fortune to smile on you. Parson was one such person, recounting that just a month after arriving, he managed to grab a nearly feral cat he found on his way home from church one Sunday. He wrote that he had to rush home, quote, before I was clawed and bitten to death, end quote. However, he was able to add happily, quote, peace tonight among the rats, end quote. Clara Spalding Brown, the wife of a teamster who joined him in Tombstone in 1880, wrote regular columns about the town to the San Diego Daily Union newspaper in California. Her first impressions of the town were just how downright dirty it was. Quote, The camp is one of the dirtiest places in the world, she wrote. When black garments appear to have been laid away in an ash barrel, and one is never sure of having a clean face, despite repeated ablations, it's time to talk about dirt. The soil is loose upon the surface and is whirled into the air every day by a wind which almost amounts to a gale. It makes the eyes smart like the cinders from an engine. It penetrates into houses and covers everything with dust. End quote. And dirt wasn't the only thing that was, well, dirty. As I said before, the town of Tombstone was built away from a water source, which meant everything had to be hauled in, costing people three cents per gallon. And while most people were out prospecting for silver, others were out looking for springs to get more water, perhaps cleaner water, into town. And cleanliness of water was a big sticking point. You may complain about the quality of water that comes out of your tap, 
but that doesn't even compare with what the residents and miners of Tombstone were dealing with. The entire community was plagued with digestive problems, and the prolific Mr. Parson recorded drinking, quote, mean water of several varieties, with the inevitable result being diarrhea. But I think the point that drives home this story the most, and it is one of those stories that you just simply have to tell in a history like this, is the one time that people were drinking water from a well that had developed a thick scum on it, only to discover later that the scum had come from the body of a dead man that somehow found its way into said well. But, I hear you say, it couldn't have been all bad, right? I mean, no one would have stayed there if every day was a continual horror story, or would they? Well, the answer is both yes and no. Yes, it's the frontier and conditions are never going to match our 20th century standards for cleanliness, or even the standards for cleanliness at the time in places like Paris, London, or Washington, D.C. But there was money to be made there, and that meant, eventually, someone was going to get rich enough that they could help raise the standard of living. For example, I mentioned that the first hotel was the Mojave, and it was run out of a tent. Obviously, that was not going to stand for long, so by 1880, the year after Tombstone Incorporated, there were two real hotels vying for the patronage of the upper crust. And these hotels, according to Gwynn at least, rivaled those to be found in New York or San Francisco. There was the two-story Cosmopolitan Hotel that featured a veranda full of potted orange trees that guests could pick fruit off of. Its main competition was the Grand Hotel, which boasted furniture carved out of walnut and honest-to-goodness spring mattresses. Another visitor in 1880 wrote that the town boasted, quote, two dance houses, a dozen gambling places, over 20 saloons, and more than 500 gamblers, end quote. The rough food for miners was all the restaurants could manage at first. After the railroad reached Tucson in March 1880, suddenly a whole new era of food that didn't need to be non-perishable opened up. Walking down the street in Tombstone, you could find imported fruit, locally brewed beer, spaghetti with meatballs, chow mein, roast duckling, and oysters, even ice cream. Also notable was the non-gambling entertainment options in the form of the Birdcage Theater, built in 1881. State historian Marshall Trimble describes the Birdcage as, quote, saloon, brothel, burlesque theater, and dance hall rolled into one, end quote. Famous vaudeville acts of the day could be found on the stage of the Birdcage, though the main draw, as you might expect, were the showgirls, who, shall we say, wore less than a proper lady of the time would. You can still visit the Birdcage today, and I highly suggest it if you make a trip down to Tombstone. Shifflin Hall, built in 1881 by Al Shifflin in honor of his brother Ed, became an important civic, social, and cultural center for the town. And those attending evening events at these venues were treated to the luxury of gas lamp lighting along the main street, which went in during the first half of 1881. The town also got a measure of credibility and importance when a telegraph line was established in 1881, followed by the branch office for Wells Fargo. And that latter tidbit will play a bit role in our story moving forward. Now, the town would experience two large fires that swept through the newly erected wooden structures. The first, caused by a bartender measuring the contents of a whiskey barrel while chomping on a cigar, took out more than 60 businesses in June of 1881. 
Less than a year later, another fire was started in a saloon and did $500,000 worth of damages. After that, you start to see a lot more brick buildings going up. And just so you know, the ubiquitous Parson, in his meticulous journals, records helping to fight both these fires, which was pretty hard to do in a place where water had to be imported in. Still, once it got going, Tombstone looked more sophisticated than other frontier towns of its time. Between the silver being pulled out of the hills and these improvements, the population of this boomtown, well, boomed. A census in late 1879 showed roughly 900 people in town, while a mere six months later, it was estimated that Tombstone had 2,100 residents, not counting the myriad of ranchers, miners, and others living around the area. All told, the area around Tombstone would top out with a population around 15,000. Trimble says that, at least at its height, Tombstone had a population greater than that of San Francisco. However, while it did have a thin veneer of respectability as money in the mines came in, we cannot forget that this was still a frontier boomtown, and it leaned heavily into that stereotype. Though he talks about people coming together to build things like churches and schools, Trimble also writes about the two sides of Allen Street. On the south side, you would find stores, cafes, and other respectable mercantile businesses. But just across the street, you would find what he calls the Barbary Coast, Old West style, or what was deemed Rotten Road. Here we find the bars, casinos, bordellos, with ongoing faro games, roulette wheels, plenty of drinking, boisterous laughter, and old-timey pianos going nearly 24-7. A self-respecting lady would not be caught dead on the north side of Allen Street, though it did seem to be that that was the side of street where the lawyer's offices were. Go figure. Though we should note that there weren't many self-respecting ladies to be found in the area to begin with. That census in 1880 showing 2,100 residents only pegged a mere 212 of them as being women. Sheridan summed up Tombstone as lacking, quote, an established judicial system and traditional set of social norms, conflicting laws and uncertain claims fueled an already incendiary mixture of miners, speculators, cowboys, rustlers, and gamblers, end quote. Trimple adds his own description of the town, saying that it was full of, quote, laissez-faire politicians, an unconcerned citizenry, defiant rustlers, and vigilance committees, end quote. I think I should add here that Trimble is also quick to point out that though it has a reputation now for eating a man every day for breakfast, Tombstone was not as violent as some other frontier towns. But it could be incredibly violent. Parson may have started off writing about rats, but his accounts also include plenty of anecdotes about saloon brawls that caused fatalities, miners being robbed and left for dead, and straight-up highway robbery. And even though he himself was a peaceful man, he started wearing pistols just because he saw others doing so. And just so you know, wearing guns in town will become a major plot point going forward. Now, the other major tension I want to touch on before we end our tour of 1881 Tombstone is one that we well recognize today, Republican versus Democrat. Though, to be fair, it looked a little different than our modern political struggles. The Republicans represented industrial capitalization, but also a strong governmental hand on the tiller, while the Democrats wanted less federal interference and more freedom for the independent rancher or miner. 
This is going to come into play because everyone just knew that Tombstone, with its massive boom in population, was going to split off Pima County any day now to become the county seat of a brand new county, which Republicans and Democrats could then vie to control. In fact, we'll see that Wyatt Earp, a Republican, was maneuvering to be appointed sheriff of this new county by fellow Republican John C. Fremont when it formed. This probably goes without saying, but more of that in a future episode. But speaking of politics, I want to revise and extend some remarks I made back in episode 71. In that episode, I detailed how John Clum, the brilliant and opinionated Indian agent in San Carlos, basically left his job after throwing a temper tantrum. I then summed up his later career by remarking that he went to Tombstone where he founded a newspaper, the fittingly titled Epitaph in 1880, and went on to be elected mayor. Except that's where I messed up, because in episode 71 I said that Clum went on to be elected Tombstone's first mayor. But while doing research for this episode, I found out that wasn't true. Because Tombstone was incorporated in 1879, but from what I can tell, Clum didn't move there or start his newspaper until 1880. In between, a man named Alder Randall was mayor. And here we have to come back around to the shady dealings of the Tombstone Townsite Company. Because after the Townsite Company failed to make the proper payments to the government, the mayor was supposed to sell off the remaining lots at a nominal fee while confirming those who were already on said lots. But Randall instead decided to quietly deed most of the town to the townsite company, undoubtedly for some hefty under-the-table compensation. When representatives of the townsite company went about demanding payment from people who thought they had already sorted out this property, Clum sprang into action. His newspaper, the Republican-controlled Epitaph, exposed the deal and Clum took the townsite company to court and managed to get an injunction against them. Randall decided that discretion was the better part of valor and chose not to run for re-election. So who would take his place? Well, the Republicans could think of nobody finer than John Clum. He was already serving as the town postmaster and edited the staunchly Republican paper in town. From that position, he railed against Democrats, Cowboys, and their newspaper, The Nugget, as well as taking aim at the Old West's favorite whipping boy, the Chinese. He and other leading Republicans formed the Tombstone Citizens League and ran a slate of candidates in the January 4, 1881 town elections on what they termed the Citizens' Protective Ticket. Clem himself was naturally the candidate for mayor and won in a landslide, beating out his Democratic rival in a vote of 532 to 165. He was possibly swept into office thanks to a sympathy vote, as his wife, the one I mentioned in episode 70 that he had put on a sideshow to get the money to go and marry, had died in childbirth just a few weeks earlier. But one of his prime goals, telling people he would secure their rights to the property they were on, hit a hard wall when the heads of the townsite company got an injunction against him assigning lots. And so the land mess in Tombstone just became muddier and muddier. Despite all this, though, the future seemed bright in 1881. As Gwen puts it, stagecoaches were arriving daily, crammed inside and sometimes outside, with people wanting to get a piece of the silver action. 
the citizenry established a custom of coming out to meet these sages, never knowing if the next big cash cow might be on board. As one resident exclaimed, quote, You never heard a hard luck story in Tombstone. Everyone had great expectations. He might not have a dollar in his pocket, but he had millions in his sight. End quote. And I think that's a good place to leave off for this week, with the stage now mostly set for the coming conflict. But join me next week as we introduce the main players in our little drama. The ambitious, often promiscuous, sometimes scofflaws, sometimes lawmen, but also always ready for action, Earp brothers. And lining up to oppose them were the rowdy, nearly uncontrollable, always rough-and-tumble, would-be Robin Hoods of the Southwest, the Cowboys. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.